you're singing. If you open up to the book of Luke in your Bibles. Normally Sheldon and I do not share. We don't normally share passages or share books in the Bible when we're preaching through them. But it's a great pleasure and honor for me to be able to open up in the, in the section of Luke that we are in and bring our minds to, to the Passover. If you're in Luke, you're in chapter 22. We'll be reading from verse 7 all the way down to verse 23. Starting in chapter 22 of Luke, verse 7. Then came the day of the unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do it. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes, as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Father God, as we look to your word and we, and we look to the, this wonderful time in the book of Luke, we pray that you would teach our hearts, that you would, you would comfort us and that you would allow us to see your son as he's presented in, in the scripture you have given to us. Amen. We are in a very famous, well-known portion of Scripture. You may have heard this called the Last Supper. You may have heard it called, well, the institution of communion. But we are, we come into this text. In verse 7, where it says, Then came the day of, the unle of unleavened bread. This wasn't at the time, the Last Supper, this wasn't at the time 
the Lord's Supper. It wasn't communion. It was the Passover. It was the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which is, in Scripture, it's, it's used synonymously in, in multiple places. Passover, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or the Feast of Passover, or the Day of Unleavened Bread. It's a period of, of a week where they would celebrate the, the commemoration of the exile not the exile, the exodus from Egypt. <clears throat> the, the leaving of Israel from the land of Egypt as they were delivered by the hand of God through his servant Moses out of Egypt through the Red Sea and into the wilderness. It's a, a feast they had to, to eat every year. It's a feast that by the law of Moses, they had to come to Jerusalem to eat it. They couldn't eat it anywhere else. They had to come together as a nation to commemorate and remember God's hand of deliverance that he had, in the way that he had delivered Israel from the hand of Egypt and from the hand of Pharaoh. As most of us know, even the little children, that Joseph the story of Joseph, how he was the, the instrument in deliverance that God gave to Israel through a famine. He, he allowed Joseph to be sell, sold into slavery, brought to Egypt, raised up into the house of Pharaoh through many struggles and tribulations. And he, and he through God's wonderful working, delivered Israel through Egypt. Through the abundance of food found in Egypt, God saved Israel. But then spending generations in the land of Egypt, the Pharaoh who, who remembered Joseph died and an evil Pharaoh took his place and then put Israel into subjection and slavery. And they were in slavery for, for many years. And finally, God, through his servant Moses, delivered them out of the hand of Egypt. And this is what they were remembering on this day. As we look through this, this passage, it is no, it's not a coincidence, it's not a happenstance, it's not an accident, that this would be the hinge upon which swings the door between the Old Testament and the New Testament. As we look to this passage, we see the Old Testament Passover, the old feast of unleavened bread, and then we will see, as many of your headings say in your Bible in, in verse 14, the institution of the Lord's Supper. We're not going to look too deeply at the Lord's Supper this week, we're going to save that for next week, but today we're going to be talking about the Passover. What was that day of unleavened bread? I think it's important to build that foundation before we get into the Lord's Supper. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, or the Passover, again happened every year in Jerusalem, and all the men had to, to gather, to, to partake of this together in, in Jerusalem, and with them came their families, and functionally, the whole nation gathered together in Jerusalem. 
The meal had two main functions. As we've said, it was like an Ebenezer. It was like a stone of remembrance. It was a, a wonderful time they could gather and they could eat the meal the same way that those in, in Egypt would have eaten the meal. They would have put on their traveling cloaks. They would have had their sandals tied. It would have been as, as if they were ready for a journey. They would have had quick bread or unleavened bread. They would have done exactly what Moses told Israel to do while they were in the land of Egypt. It would have been in the, like, like those Christmas dinners you remember from a, uh, from a child, how you'd have the same supper or the same Christmas gathering every year, and it seemed like, from a child's perspective, it was exactly the same as it was last year. It was a wonderful reminder of family, of, of good times, that we would remember, that we would remember the, the celebration of, of, of Christmas. In the same way they would have remembered it would have happened the same time of year in the same way they would have gathered together with family and they would have eaten in the same way that their ancestors have always eaten. And it would have reminded them, especially those who truly believe in the deliverance of God, that God himself did save their people from the wicked and evil land of Egypt. But not only that, the second reason for this feast was a, was a, a future promise. That every time they took this feast, they were looking forward to that day that they would be delivered, just as their ancestors were delivered, from a wicked and evil generation. The book of Jeremiah I'll turn there. Jeremiah, you don't have to. Jeremiah 16, if you want to, verse 14 to 15. The prophet Jeremiah says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people out of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as, but as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country, and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land and I, that I gave to their fathers. Israel as a nation through their prophets have seen even the deliverance out of Egypt as a typological deliverance that would indeed be fulfilled in the deliverance of all of Israel out of all the nations. With that in mind, even John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus the Christ, he said to everyone who could hear him, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Speaking, speaking of that feast that typified what would happen, that would happen on that cross. That, that feast, that, that holiday of of unleavened bread or Passover not only pointed back to Egypt but pointed forward to the Messiah. As we saw, the Lamb spoke of the spotless, unblemished Lamb of God. That one who would be the embodiment of purity and, and completion perfection who would indeed take on 
himself the sins of his people. The next aspect of the, the Feast of Passover is that which it's named after, unleavened bread. The kids might think, well, what is unleavened bread? Well, leaven is like a germ or a bacteria that's mixed in with the dough of a bread, and that's what makes it fluffy. That's when you have, when your mom or your dad bakes bread and it grows in the in the bowl before you bake it, it rises. That's the bacteria making the bread fluffy. And that leaven, if you put a little bit into a lump of dough, works its way into the whole lump of dough. And the whole lump of dough becomes leavened. And Moses, speaking to Israel, commanding them in the way they should eat this feast, told them to, before they eat the lamb, they were to take away all of the leaven from their whole house. They were to search their house and get rid of all of the products that had leaven in them. Remove all of the bread, the nice fluffy bread, get rid of it. Perhaps even get rid of the yeast they had in containers. Why would they do this? Well, the leaven that was that was being discarded or, or searched out and, and disposed of was a wonderful picture of the fact that Israel was commanded to search out corruption and, and get rid of such things as idolatry, wickedness, licentiousness, and all the works of the flesh. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul, using the analogy of leaven, in verse 6 to 8, gives us a wonderful picture. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So they would make this bread. It would have none of the none of the corruption that would that would infiltrate the whole lump, but in but instead it would symbolize it. Sincerity, truth, purity, that they may be pure before God. And they would also cook the lamb in something. They wouldn't just have a plain lamb roasted on a fire, but they would they would cook it with herbs. And these herbs were supposed to be bitter. Bitter. That when you ate them, it wasn't sweet and delectable. It wasn't savory and delicious. It was supposed to be a reminder that this was not a... A reminder of, of bitterness and, and... And yuckiness. Why would they, why would they want to make the, a lamb... Why were they commanded to make the lamb with these spices that would make the lamb not taste as good as it could be? 
Well, that bitterness, that, that off-putting flavor in the lamb was to remind them of the, of their, the bitterness of, of, of slavery, the bitterness of being in Egypt, the bitterness of their, their, the generations before, the generation eating was not holy, that the Messiah had not come yet, and that in a way they were still in Egypt, that the bitterness of their slavery had never left them. And then further yet, what kind of cup was it that our Lord drank for us on that cross? <clears throat> We've alluded to it many times as we prayed for the cup, as we, as we had the supper together. We, we, we thank God often that the cup that we drink is a sweet cup full of blessing, a wine that tastes good to our lips and to our tongue. It's sweet and refreshing and it and it tastes good, but the cup that our Lord drank on that cross was a cup of bitterness. The wine that he was given was a wine of a wine of wrath, of destruction. The feast of Passover not only pointed back to Egypt, but pointed forwards to the Messiah who would come who would be that spotless lamb, who would be that unleavened lump, who would be the one who would drink that cup of bitterness for his people. So on that feast of unleavened, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed, Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And he said, when you have entered a city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you there. And it's, it's very, very vague. If you read the text in the, in the Greek, it's, there will be a man. No kidding. They're, they're, going, into, they're going into Jerusalem in Passover. There's not just going to be a man, there is going to be perhaps a million men. There were some, some historians that said that some Passovers, two million people, as many as two million people, could have met in Jerusalem at one time. We don't know exactly how many were there on that day, but we can know for certain that there was going to be more than one man. He tells Peter and John, you're going to find a man... But he said he, he narrowed it down as he's going to be carrying a jug of water. And again, my kids might say, when we go to pick up water, we live in a town, we get jugs of water, we go to pick up water, there's often a multitude of men waiting in line to fill up water that they may take the water, put it in their vehicles, and go home. How are they going to find the man carrying the water that they are supposed to find. Well, in those days, we know who would be most likely carrying the water. It wasn't the men. They would most likely send their servant girls or the wives, and they would go to the well and carry the water home. 
not because the men were sitting back reclining, because they were working as well, but it was most likely, more usually, a woman's job to go get the water. So when they said, go find the man carrying the jug of water, it wouldn't have been as daunting as you may think. It wasn't quite the needle in the haystack that it sounds like. He also told them this for another reason. Someone was with them. Someone was with them that we heard last week from Pastor Sheldon who was looking to betray Jesus. And what better way to, what better place to betray Jesus than a secluded room meant to be private where the crowds couldn't see him. Many commentators who I read said that one of the reasons that Jesus was so vague and setting Peter and John ahead of him, giving such vague direction, was that so Judas could not know where they would meet and, and send for the, the chief priests. Because now was not the time he was going to be betrayed. Now was the time when he was going to institute the Lord's Supper and eat with his friends and partake of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Another wonderful reason why God, why Jesus did this the way he did it was to leave no doubt in the apostles' mind who they were with. They were to go to a specific place, find a random guy carrying a jug of water, and that man would lead them to a house, and in that house they would be welcome to eat the feast. Again, as many as two million people were crowding into the area, and Space was, was at a premium. To find an upper room big enough to host the disciples and, and the Lord to eat of the Passover would have been next to impossible. But it's wonderful that while Jesus said to, to Peter and John, go and prepare the Passover, that it wasn't Peter and John who had prepared the way to the Passover, but it was Jesus himself who prepared that way to that meal. He had a man, he had a room ready for them, and he sent his disciples to go forward and just fall into the preparation that he himself had made. <clears throat> Some commentators have said that maybe this man was a disciple of Christ. Some have said maybe Christ had even talked to him in advance and, and arranged it. I, that's conjecture. I'm not willing to go that far. We have no idea. But we do know that Jesus was God. And again, it was not Peter and John who prepared that room. In advance, it was Christ himself. So they went and they did it. They found the man. They showed him the upper room that was fully furnished, and they went to the task of preparing the Passover feast. They were getting the lamb ready. They were getting the unleavened bread ready. They were preparing the place for Jesus and, and the rest of them to eat. And verse 14 says, And when the hour had came, he reclined at the table. 
and the apostles with him. What a wonderful picture. I said from the pulpit many times, one of some of my favorite day of rest activities is to go home and recline. To, to, to rest fully from the work of the day, to go home after being rested here in the Word, to go home and rest physically from, from the week of work. And this would have been perhaps maybe the sweetest moment of rest, because it was the moment of rest that would come immediately before immediately before that very work of redemption that Jesus would accomplish. That, that work was immediately ahead of him. He knew that there was going to be not just work, but suffering in front of him. And in that moment, he loved that phrase. Reclined at table with the apostles with him. And it was at that hour, when the hour came, Now, reading about this this week, there, I came into controversy I didn't even think. Perhaps I hadn't had been studied enough on this, but the moment I started looking into, and when the hour came, what hour was this? Many, many controversies came to the forefront, even among the, the commentators who I normally read when studying for sermons. Some said that Jesus ate this meal on a Wednesday. Some said, no, he ate this meal on a Thursday. Some said he couldn't have eaten it on a Thursday because if he was killed on a Friday, he wouldn't be three days in the grave. Some say that when John tells us in his, his epistle, his, his gospel, that the, the Pharisees and the chief priests and their servants they wouldn't enter into a certain person's house because they didn't want to be defiled so they can continue to eat the feast. That means they hadn't eaten the feast yet, which means that it couldn't have been Thursday. It had to be Wednesday. All that to say, this was indeed Thursday, before Good Friday. This was the day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There's no reason for us to believe that, that Jesus decided to have a different kind of feast a day before the, the rest of the nation. The, the seemingly contradiction in, in John 18 could very well, they didn't want to sully themselves for the rest of the feast of unleavened bread. As I had already said, that, was, that term was used to describe that whole period of time. No, the way the Jews counted days, that Jesus dying on a Friday, he was in the grave Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Three days in the grave. Good Friday is still very much Good Friday. It's not Good Thursday. The Lord indeed raised on a Sunday, resting from his work on his day, creating for us a brand new a brand new Sabbath day. That was the hour that had come. That hour. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. Again, that strange hour that would have been almost like the, the, 
the hinges I'd said between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This feast was like, like, the, like a fulcrum that everything balanced upon. On one side of this feast, there was the Old Testament times, the feast that the Jews had to continue on in, the, the holy days and the Sabbaths and the new moon festivals. And then immediately after this feast, would be something brand new. Not completely different, but brand new. This was the hour. The hour that, that Jesus had been looking forward to ever since when Pastor Sheldon started talking with his march to Jerusalem. This would have been you're a NASCAR fan, this would have been the final lap. This would have been the, the pit stop before the final lap is completed. This is the, the moment where things hinge. This hour. This hour that would change the Passover supper into the much sweeter and beautiful Lord's Supper. When the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. If you have the King James or New King James, that I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you. I have desired, desired. I have overly desired. I have all of my desire has been focused upon this moment. To eat this Passover with you before I suffer. There have been many reasons why people have, or many reasons attributed to his desire. Perhaps he was, he was desiring to institute his final supper, the last supper, the, to institute the Lord's Supper. Perhaps he was desirous to, to finally complete his march to the cross. His desire to save his people was, was building to a crescendo. He, was, he had nothing else before his eyes but the cross, some would say. He was ready to, to give his life for his friends. I think all that's true. I think all of those things were on his mind, that, this, that his, his journey was almost at a close, that the culmination of history was soon to take place, that the, the, uh, the apogee of, of action was going to finally reach its height, and, and he the Lord would give his life for his people. But I think there's also something he's saying in the text. It's not just that he was looking forward to the cross. It's not just that he was looking to, to save his people from their sins. But this moment, I think the text is pretty plain. Jesus says, for I tell you, sorry, he said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
which gives us a wonderful insight into the character of our Savior. We might have the temptation, we might have the propensity to think of this of this, this time purely trans, as a transaction. We often, we often talk about the cross as the, the great exchange. Our sin goes on the cross. His righteousness is given to us. We often think of this as a, as a mere truth that happened. It is a truth that happened. That Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But here, in the text, is again a wonderful insight into Jesus our Savior. He says, he sits down with his friends and says, I've desired earnestly to eat this Passover with you. The God we worship is not merely a God of transaction. He's not merely a God who created the universe and as a deist might think, he steps back and watches it happen. He's not merely thinking about people on a transaction level that they believe I saved them, they come to heaven. But here, we are given a, a given God in human flesh as he is, as he is, he is loving to those whom, his, whom he loves. His friends, he actually loves them. His people, he actually cares for them. He didn't see the people around him as just people he was going to save. He knew Peter. He knew John. He knew the rest of them and he loved them. He wanted to be there eating that meal with his friends, with his people. And in that truth, there is, there is a kind of application I hope that I can articulate well enough that I can Im Im impress it upon you. Peter was that, that man who shoved his foot in his mouth countless times. He knew not only Peter in the past, the impetuous, rash man that he was, the sinner, but he knew that this Peter, as he is going to tell him very shortly, that this Peter is going to be the one who's going to deny him. That there is going to be a perhaps not as great a betrayal as the Judas the Judas perpetrated, but there would be a kind of betrayal from Peter. John. John and his brother and many of the disciples immediately after the supper are going to start arguing who is the greatest, who is the best. These men were not altogether lovely. These men were not altogether perfect or deserving of eating a supper with the Messiah. 
But even these people, Jesus not only condescended and tolerated, it wasn't just a meal that he had to nose and to get through it. I've been there eating supper with a family supper and the I'm not going to maybe give a, a, a relation of yours might be there and that no one can, can really tolerate eating the supper to get through the supper so you can leave the presence of that person. We've all had those. That's not what was happening. Jesus earnestly, fervently desired to eat the supper with these men. Why is this important? Why is it so good? Because, brothers and sisters, Jesus sets this meal in front of you, and he fervently desires to eat this supper with us. Again, he doesn't look at his people merely as a transaction. He's not looking at us saying, this is a person who was a sinner, I've saved them, they're in my kingdom now. That is part of it. But we cannot forget the fact that Jesus actually and really, in a way that we cannot fully understand, actually loves his people. In the same way you look at your child, while a sinner, and love them, in the same looks at these men, this table, and loves them, looks in this church, and loves us. These people who are going to desert him. Only one of them is going to be there at his crucifixion. Those closest to him are going to leave. And yet he, he really and loves them. Brothers and sisters, how many times have we left the Lord? I know Pastor Sheldon spoke about this last week during the, his sermon on betrayal, but how many of us have sinned? Immediately after promising the Lord, I wouldn't do that again. How many of us have in our hearts left him? How many of us have not spoken it out and, 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 and preached him the way we ought to? We sing the song all the time that we won't boast in anything but save boasting in the cross of Christ. How many times have we boasted in ourselves? How many times have we disputed amongst each other, even in our hearts, who's the greatest? And yet, Christ not only gave his life on a cross for us, he did, but he loves us. Like a father caring for little children. He loves us. Next week we're going to go and we're going to go through the, the Lord's Supper and see more of its beauty there. But looking forward to that time, brothers and sisters, as we see the table in front of us, it's not merely a supper. It's not merely a reminder. It is a proclamation of Jesus Christ's love for his church. His body broken for us, 
his blood spilled for us as the as the blood spilled to to inaugurate the new covenant and here we have Jesus Christ himself declaring to us as church he loves us and he earnestly desires to eat this Passover with us let's pray Heavenly Father, as we look to your supper, the supper that your Son has given to us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would allow us even now to, to comprehend even in some way a bit more of, of your Son's love for us. Father, we, we love you and we pray that you would help us to love you more. Thank you for your word and your supper.